By the time she was in the throes of COVID-19, Laura Hillenbrand said she couldn't walk two houses down. She felt like her chest was wrapped in duct tape. She gasped for air. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with The Oregonian. On this bonus episode, we talk to Hillenbrand, the New York Times bestselling author of Seabiscuit and Unbroken, about her health scare. Hillenbrand tested negative for the disease caused by the new coronavirus, an increasingly common phenomenon, but she said three different doctors have told her she had it. The Oregonian and Oregon Live's Noel Crombie interviewed Hillenbrand, who lives in Oregon, about her symptoms, the problems with the testing methodology, her recovery, and how she was already equipped in some ways to cope with COVID-19 due to her prior and ongoing experience with chronic disease. Here's that conversation. I, I wanted to just talk about how, how you're feeling, Laura. How, how, how do you feel today? I am getting enough air, but I have to work pretty hard to do it. Um, you, you know, I'm not in terrible distress, but I'm nowhere near well. It's kind of been stuck for a couple of weeks now in the same place where I'm not really getting better. Um, I am reassured by a pulmonologist yesterday that that is not unusual, that this is a this this virus is ferocious and it just it takes a, a long time to get better from it. And so I am just going to wait it out. Um, I'm OK, but I'm not you know, I don't feel good. Can you talk a little bit about the the onset? I, I read your your Facebook accounts and I know they're detailed, sure. but I was wondering if you could walk me through um, those initial early um, symptoms. Sure. I actually was driving out to see my horse, and I noticed that my chest was really tight and kind of had it in the back of my mind. It's been this way all day. And at that moment, I was realizing, wow, I just really want to cough, but there's no congestion. And it just felt like there was duct tape wrapped around my chest. And I was a little concerned about it. I It didn't occur to me right at first that this was a symptom of COVID. Um, I, I don't think of uh, this kind of symptom as being something viral. So I, I didn't go see my horse. I decided to go home. Um, and it just continued. I just continued to feel bad. My throat started to hurt a lot. My mouth got very raw. Um, and I quarantined right away from, from then on. Um, and just, it was just difficult to breathe. Um, I was coughing a whole lot, but nothing was coming up, just completely, um, dry coughing. And, um, I started to get chills. I started to get, um, some, some shaking on and off, um, and just started to feel pretty lousy. It wasn't horrible at that point, but I, I didn't feel good. Um, I was concerned about trying to figure out what was going on, why I was having difficulty breathing. And for the first two days, I, I felt really pretty bad. I was, I was really sucking air. It felt a little bit like I was breathing through gauze. But it didn't get worse. And I, I thought, okay, I seem to have this. Um, it, I'm fitting the description of this. But I probably will just have a mild case. I'm not in, in the official high-risk groups. And I did okay for a week. I didn't feel great that the breathing problems would get better and worse. But overall, I seem to be doing okay with that. Um, I got progressively more exhausted each day, and 
I tried to take a walk, I think, on day six or so, and I was just completely wiped out by it, by a very short walk. Like, I think I made it two houses away and came back, and I was just panting. But I hung in there for seven days, and on day eight, the sky fell. Um, I, I woke up struggling to breathe. Uh, really struggling now. It felt like I was breathing through a honeycomb, chest really tight, uh, just gasping, only getting half breath. My breath was hissing. And I was starting to feel really lightheaded and, and just out of, out of breath, just really short of breath. And like I wasn't getting enough air. I was working really hard to breathe, but still not getting enough air. And I should, to back up just a little on, on day seven, I had walked across the house to get a cup of tea in the morning and just walking that far, I had to sit down on a flight of stairs for 10 minutes because I was breathing so hard. And this was strange. Um, and, but then day eight, I was in crisis. I was just not getting an affair. And I uh, texted a friend who was a healthcare worker and she came rushing over with a pulse oximeter. She threw it to my boyfriend because we're in quarantine. He threw it to me and I started taking numbers and giving her fingers through the window to show her how many, you know, what the numbers were. And anything, 100 is normal. Anything below 95, you get worried. Um, I was at 93, 91, 89. And by the time I'm at 89, I'm not thinking straight. And I'm, I'm shaking like crazy. It was becoming difficult to make a choice of what to do um, because I was getting so foggy-headed. And I texted a, an ICU doctor I had been in touch with, and he said, go to the hospital right now. Don't wait. I was laboring to breathe, breathing like I was running a marathon, um, just for the short walk from the car into the check-in place. They had glass windows pulled across the check-in area to protect the, the people working there. And so I was having to speak quite loudly, and they were shouting back at me, they needed me to spell my name. It's 11 letters. <laughs> when you're completely out of breath, really lightheaded, it was a lot. And just the effort of getting those letters out, I staggered a couple steps backward, hit the wall, and went straight down to the floor. Just not enough oxygen in me. And got myself back up. They sent me back outside because they were trying to separate potential COVID people from the rest of the ER, which is very smart. But it was cold out there, and they told me to just stand outside the ambulance entry, uh, which had a, a, a closed door. And I, I stood there for a while, and nobody came, and I just eventually just sank down to the ground because I couldn't stand any longer. I was too lightheaded, and I'm just laboring to breathe. And finally, someone came and waved at me to come in, and they, they hit something that opened the door, and they ushered me really quickly back into the into the examination room, which they have... Uh, it's they have two places there that are sealed off. They're sealed rooms so that anybody who coughs in there is not going to go out and infect anybody else. And they're reserving them just for potential COVID people. And so that's where I was the whole time. And fortunately, while I was there, my body started to kind of get it together. I spent a long time just sitting very still on the bed. And my pulse oximeter rating went up, and I, I started to kind of stabilize. My head got clearer. All the way through this, the symptoms have gone up and down and up and down, um, which I, apparently is typical. And that 
the nosedive on day eight that I have is very typical. Um, a lot of people will start thinking they're better, and then it's day six, seven, eight, nine, somewhere around there, they will they will crash. I've been told this many times now. It's it's kind of a signature of the more more serious cases of it. I was stable enough to go back home, and thank goodness didn't have to get checked in and put on oxygen or a ventilator. But they that's, did test you uh, at the hospital. Yes, yes, and that's. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you want to get into the complexities of the, the testing thing um, because it's a positive is a positive. It, it means they found the DNA of the virus in there. A negative is is really iffy. Um, it's um, at minimum they're they're missing it, the, the negatives are false thirty percent of the time. I have. Uh, seen reputable reports, um, credible reports of more than that. Um, so they're not taking negatives seriously if you are exhibiting all of the symptoms, which to me, I've never had anything like this. I don't know anything that acts this way. Um, and in my case, it's I am so classically, presenting so classically, everyone I spoke to, most importantly, including this pulmonologist who runs a COVID clinic. Like, oh, yes, absolutely. It's COVID, no doubt. So the test was negative, but they said, you're, look, there's a high negative rate with this test, and you're presenting as a classic COVID case. We are proceeding with the understanding that that's what you have. Yes, and actually they don't use the word negative. Um, they use the word not detected oh, okay. um, because they stick a swab up your nose. My nose is completely dry. Um, you know, she put it up there and I'm thinking there's nothing going to be on there because my nose is just, I've had no congestion of any kind during this, which is typical. Um, but there's there's that. There's other things that could potentially fail. So it's it's in terms of negative, not a very good test. In terms of positive, it's very good. But they were very clear to say this is not diagnostic to to say it's not detected here. You should assume you have it and quarantine and behave in the same way. And as you would, it's a test to come back positive, considering that I have all the symptoms and, and the course of the illness as well. Well, that's one of the frustrating things about this testing, just generally nationally and here in Oregon around testing. It's It's really kind of a false indicator in general of... How much yeah. of this is really among us? Um, because so yeah. many people can get tested, and uh, yeah. so it's not particularly, um, it's not really a very informative data point. I'm not among the numbers in my county that are considered positive, but you know, three doctors told me yesterday, "I'm positive. You have this. There's, there's no doubt about it." So. It is frustrating. I'm sure there's lots and lots of people out there. A lot of my friends in different places across the country have the same situation. They either haven't been able to get tested, but they have the classic symptoms, or they tested negative, but the doctors are saying, yeah, but I'm going to treat you like you have it because it looks exactly like it. And the coincidence of having something as singular as this illness um, at exactly the same time as there's a pandemic it seems like too much. It doesn't look like a cold. You know, I hear people saying, it's just a cold. It's nothing like a cold. <laughs> it's nothing like a cold. It's nothing like the flu. Yeah, it's I its own to animal. ask you that. What, uh, how would you compare it um, to other, you know, illnesses, uh, just sort, sort of like a cold or a flu? How does, it, how does it rank with the illnesses we all kind of recognize and have had? You're not going to get nasal congestion. I don't think initially you're going to get chest congestion. I'm not a doctor. I don't know. It's possible if it goes into pneumonia, I think you'll get chest congestion, you know, secondary bacterial pneumonia. 
Um, but the, the very weird thing about it is you can't breathe, but there's nothing to cough up. And, and that's really scary as a, as a patient. You, you are coughing, but there's nothing in there. It's that your, your airways are so dramatically inflamed that your lungs get stiff and they can't accept much oxygen. And, you know, they start basically closing themselves off. So you're breathing really hard and it's not helping that much to get the proper amount of oxygen into you. And I've never had a flu like that, you know, certainly not a cold. It's not a cold. It looks nothing like a cold. I mean, the thing that everybody who has it is thinking about all the time is the breathing. You know, there's lots of other symptoms that might go with something else like chills. And, and you know, I hear about people getting chills so bad they, they break their teeth. Um, and certainly you have the chills and the shaking and, and I have great big lymph nodes on my neck that really hurt, but people aren't talking about that. You can deal with that, but when you can't breathe, um, that's, it's just very, very scary and difficult. And that's, that doesn't happen unless you get pneumonia or something like that. You're now a couple of weeks into this illness and I'm 23 days actually, I'm more than three weeks into it. I have not gone down into that crisis place again. I have dipped into very bad breathing uh, many times since then, but it's never gone into that crisis where I'm not getting enough air and my and my pulse oximeter reading is dropping really badly. I'm watching that. Um, so I haven't hit another crisis like that, but I'm not getting better. Um, I'm just kind of staying at this same place of having difficulty breathing, having shortness of breath. Um, you know, I will walk 25 yards and be so out of breath, I've got to sit down right on the spot and just sit there and pant for a while before I get up. Now, the pulmonologist I spoke to yesterday said, you just have to be patient. Um, the likelihood is you're, you're going to get better. You're not going to go into another crisis. You just have to wait because this thing is a beast and and it uh, it comes loaded for bear and basically it's going to take a long time to get better. He said, you know, expect another month of of wow. feeling pretty sick before it starts to get better, which would be two months for me since I got it. Is that because you're he so said weak? That's the way it's because your lungs are so weakened by it, or in the rec- and they're just trying to no. regain that strength, or is it because you're still battling the the virus? Do, do you know? I don't know, and I, I'm not a doctor, um, but I, what I suspect it is is you have continuing inflammation in the lungs that is just, it takes a while to resolve. It's, it's just a very, very ferocious virus. I think you'd need to ask a doctor for, to be sure whether the, whether the virus actually stays in you that long. I don't know. I'm no longer getting chills. I'm no longer getting shaking. So I think it's possible I've thrown the virus off, but I'm just dealing with the aftermath of, of just temporarily, hopefully, injured lungs. Let's take a break and then hear more of Noelle Crombie's conversation with Laura Hillenbrand. Hillenbrand, the best-selling author of Seabiscuit and Unbroken, is an Oregon resident. In the second half of the interview, Hillenbrand talks about how she ended up in Oregon and what it's been like to battle this disease with her existing chronic health issues.
what um, has it been like to be, uh, you know, a, a patient experiencing this pandemic and watching it kind of play out around the country and the globe? What, it, it, to know that you actually have this thing that is, you know, topic A. I have chronic fatigue syndrome. I'm very careful about germs and about just taking care of myself. And the fact that I got it anyway testifies to how easily transmitted it is. So that, so that's a kind of an amazing thing for me. I also feel so compassionate toward the people who get this much worse than I do. The pulmonologist said that I reside in the land between the 5% who crash and burn and the 80% who get it more mildly. And, and mild in their clinical definition here only means you are not hospitalized. Um, so you can get really, really sick and still be called mild with this disease. And he said, mine is worse than the 80%, but it's not as bad as the crash and burn people who end up on ventilators or they die. Um, but I, I definitely get a taste now of what these people are feeling when they get to this point where they can't breathe. This has never happened to me in life. I normally sail through respiratory things. And not being able to get enough air and feeling the distress of your lungs, feeling a sense that you've been hit in the chest with a baseball bat, this, this sense of stunned lungs, it's very distressing. And I feel so compassionate for the people who are in this more seriously than I am and are, are just fighting for every breath because it's terrifying. It really is frightening. Well, how do you think you, you got it? I know you, you, you speculated a little bit about it on Facebook. What, can you walk me through what you, what you think happened how you got exposed it seems pretty clear with me um because i am a writer i'm not out in the world all that much but my boyfriend who lives with me works at a ski resort and they have a lot of chinese tourists up there um, and people from other affected regions and it's a petri dish up there i have heard that a lot of ski resorts had had outbreaks come out of them and uh he worked up there hands-on lots of people lots of tourists and he came home coughing um, one day, and I actually assumed he was he was coughing because we had spent time in our in a riding arena with our horse, who was knocking up dust. And I thought for a day or two, well, that's just he just has a scratchy throat from inhaling dust. And then he was saying his throat was sore, and then I'm like, uh oh. And he ended up getting the same symptoms I did, just much more mildly. He is supernaturally healthy. Um, and getting over it quickly. He, you know, he just had a few days of feeling, um, of coughing uh, a lot, but not productively, of a sore throat, um, and he got pretty exhausted. And, and then he was okay. But with me, the, the cough and sore throat started just like his, and I thought, I've just gotten this from you. Um, but in me, it, it, it went much more wild than it did in him. Um, I'm not I'm not as healthy a person as he is. Um, you know, different people just respond differently. You know, some people seem to be very healthy people and they do very badly, and other people, you know, not so much. Um, and so we had a different response to it. But I'm almost positive it was him um, that. And, and you know, of course, he didn't he didn't know he was sick when uh, when he got me sick. <laughs> if that's what happened. Do do you think that your own experience with your own um, illness before you developed a COVID did that prepare you at all for the isolation or the ups and downs of this? I've had um, chronic fatigue syndrome for 33 years, and for the first 
25 of them, I was almost entirely housebound. There, There was a span of two years that I didn't leave the house once because I was so weak. Um, there were big stretches of time when I didn't even get down my staircase because I simply could not walk that far. Um, and so I am an Olympic level self isolator. <laughs> and so it's, that's not hard for me at all. I have lots of coping techniques for that. Um, so yeah, I was definitely prepared for that kind of thing. It's not a big deal. And of course I, I'm, I have been until now, I'm much healthier now and getting out in the world a lot, but I'm still a writer and I still work at home. I don't work in an office um, and I'm, I'm accustomed to a more solitary life. What are some of those coping techniques that you've learned over, over the course of your own life? I learned to structure my days, to try to spend some time doing things that are good for uh, my mind, I meditate every day. Right now I'm meditating several times a day. Mm. Um, you know, I try to spend time listening to audiobooks and getting away from the news, especially right now. I can't work right now. I'm too, I'm too sick for that. And it just, I tried to for a couple of days and I just felt wiped out by it. It's too much stress, but I, I'm good at arranging my life in in a way that minimizes a feeling of loneliness or or stir craziness I, it's it, it's been my entire adult life that i've had to live in a compromised way this way and you, you do get more accustomed to it uh in time what this is a, a, just a random question but what sense do you feel that you have developed the most reliance on over the years given your health issues I mean do you huh. um, I'm just curious about that are, are you more of a you know listener because you're doing audiobooks and maybe because you're not you for years weren't out about in the world as much so not taking so much in visually I mean so are you and you're listening to people's accounts and you're basically you know talking on the phone I mean, that's such a great question no one's ever asked me a question like that it's really good um, I think all of my senses have been cultivated by the isolation so that I'm capable of being very alive to very tiny details, whether it's a sound or a scent or a feel with my fingers in something or anything that is sensory, I'm very highly attuned to. There there were a number of years that I spent completely trapped in a bed in a room with nothing new to look at. And I learned to look out the window at the trees and fantasize shapes in the tops of the trees as the wind blew them. I would see different shapes in them and kind of make up stories with that. And I am intensely alive to everything that comes into my senses. There's not one in particular. I'm, they're all very hungry, and I never lose a sense of gratitude of being able to go out into the sunshine and feel the sun on my skin because I couldn't do it for many years. And all those things that people take for granted, I don't. I never will. But that's a that's a great question. <laughs> do you think in meditation, since you're doing that now, and it's so focused on you know your breath and being very observant of your breath and bringing your attention to that? Is there anything about the fact that breath has been a challenge and that, you know, it's something we don't even think about in our day-to-day life, um, but you've struggled with it given this COVID experience. What has meditating been like during, uh, as you've recovered from this? 
it's been a godsend to me to meditate. I do visualize a lot my lungs while I meditate. I visualize the breath opening them and uh, softening them because they they are literally stiff with inflammation with this disease. Um, and I focus on the oxygen flowing through my body, and it does feel like that changes things. And it's important when you have something that is is as distressing as the loss of the ability to breathe normally that you have something that can bring you some peace in that because it's it's very naturally very frightening to not be able to breathe. It, it's it's the thing you need first and most is to be able to get air into your lungs. And I'm using meditation to be at peace with the limits of my breathing right now, to, to still feel very calm in it and know I'm getting enough and visualizing getting enough to my brain and my heart and, and my fingers and everywhere through me to try to get through this. I highly recommend that to anybody with this because it, it helps you have peace while visualizing healing for your lungs. I do think it helps. How have you managed to stay connected? Uh, I guess during this, but also before this, given your um, your health concerns. I mean, how you, you are so connected and you are so observant, such an observer of uh, people and the world. And how how have you managed to stay sort of plugged in and connected? You mean to other people? And yeah, yeah. Just what's happening in the world? Yes, and the world. Yeah. Well. A lot of it I didn't stay connected with. And do you mean now or like over the whole course guess, of I guess, my beach? I guess now, but maybe more before as well. Okay. Um, well, I did disconnect in the past. Um, it, it, before the internet, which is when my illness hit, um, I really lost touch with everything and everybody. I mean, the world just went on without me and... and those years are kind of, it's kind of like I was not alive during them. I, I have very little cultural memory from that time. I, I I didn't know what people were doing or how the language was changing, all kinds of things I didn't know about. It, I just wasn't there. I was in a room. I, I spoke to almost no one. I had very little contact with anybody. Most of the time I was just living alone with my mother and I hardly saw her. Um, so there would be a lot of days when I, I saw no one at all. In more recent years, it, the Internet has been a great gift to me. It has enabled me to reconnect with everyone I used to know and lots of new people and to write books and to have a career. When I was writing my previous two books, I was very sick for both of them, but I was still able to do them and, and do the research because, largely because of the Internet and telephones, of course. It's amazing how much you can be in the world in a state of physical compromise um, and I, I have been able to, to learn how to do that. I have a lot of great friends on Facebook so I feel like I have a wonderful social life out there and of course now I'm healthier so I have a lot of friends in real life that I see. Yeah, I mean it's it's something, it's, it's a little bit of an art and I had to come out of my isolation into a whole new world uh, where everything was different to me. I didn't know the technology. I didn't know how the culture had changed. Um, you know, I'd go to a grocery store and not know how to do this self-checkout thing. This was mysterious. I've never pumped gas before. I've, there's all kinds of things I just 
uh, I knew nothing about and I still stumble over, you know, not knowing what, what the culture is like um, and what the world is like. But of course, the good side of that is that it's all brand new and it's all a gift I never expected. And I am an elated person a lot of the time just from an ordinary thing, you know, from the, the beauty of a drop of rain falling off a leaf. Um, to me, it'll put me in raptures because I have the privilege of seeing that, whereas I didn't for so long and I never thought I'd get better. How um, how had you been feeling before uh, before you developed co- contracted COVID? What what was your health like in, in the, at that time? I still have ME-CFS. Um, I'm much, much, much better than I was. I still had limitations from the distance I could walk, stamina was the biggest problem, but a lot of things I had completely conquered. Um, I was very fit. I could, I couldn't do anything with stamina in it, but I could. I was lifting weights every day, and um, doing a lot of muscle things, a lot of balance things. Um, I still have had trouble with vertigo, but it's not as bad as it was. And other symptoms, smaller symptoms, um, are there. There's. I'm definitely not completely well, but I was up to a point of functioning where. Um, you would think I was a, a fit and healthy person to look at me, um, and I could spend a day with you, and you would have no idea mm. that things were going on with me. And some of that is I'm able to adjust to them, and some of that is that they've they've faded a lot. I've I've been able to um, get better with a lot of things. Um, so I actually was doing better than ever just before this happened. I was working out harder than ever, and 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 really pushing to try to beat back more of those symptoms and get closer to being well. And, and uh, it's been really frustrating to have to stop all that and, and to be afraid that a relapse could come. Um, and that is something I don't know, but I'm just going to believe it's not going to happen. And meditation is going to help with that, I think, you know, to help me to to visualize myself as coming all the way back and being okay after this. How did you end up in, in Oregon? I my boyfriend lived out here and he I can't fly because of vertigo so he in 2015 drove to DC and and we took a drive across the country it took 24 days it was 3700 miles because we meandered so I could see all the things I'd never seen. I'd never seen a mountain. I, there were so many things I'd never seen. I'd never traveled the country. I, I, I was 19 when I got sick, so I, I hadn't seen anything or done anything. And so the whole thing was this wondrous experience uh, where you know I would scream with delight in the car at the redness of the grass in Kansas, and you know, or the Badlands, or um, you know, uh, all of these resplendent things in nature that I'd never been able to see in great cities and, and it was it was the best experience of my life to do that. It was hard. It was scary. It risked my life to do it. But I just I yeah, yeah. It was very dangerous for me to do. I just had to believe I could do it. I, we just had to manage it very carefully. Only drive a little bit each day. Uh, but we made it and uh and I I arrived healthier than when I left. That was the most amazing thing. What has it been like to be, uh, you know, an Oregonian? It's such a different world because I, I'm a I'm a DC born and bred kind of girl. My dad was a lobbyist. My mother wrote for the Washington Post. It, uh, it, it's such a different world. It's so beautiful out here, and people are so kind. It's it's such a a gentle pace and a gentle way of living. It's been wonderful 
food. You know, you walk into a an orchard and you can pick cherries, you know, the best cherries you've ever had just right there and, and you know, get a bucket and weigh it and pay a few bucks and there's your lunch. And um, everything has been magical out here. It's 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 really a beautiful place. And, and I never thought that I would get out of that bedroom. I, I never imagined anything like this. The breadth of possibility in a person's life is so much greater than most of us recognize because I thought that I would live the rest of my life in that bedroom and die there. And I was wrong. You know, I was so wrong. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with The Oregonian. Come back for more discussions on Monday. I talked with The Oregonian and Oregon Live's Rob Davis and Shane Dixon Cavanaugh about the state's evolving reaction to pressure from news organizations to divulge more information and what we know about the state's first fatality tied to COVID-19. Reliable news about how the coronavirus pandemic is affecting lives, jobs, and the economy in Oregon is more important than ever. You can support our work for just 10 bucks a month. Subscribe at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.